Okay, we are on the bottom of Tezayin Amr Aleph of 16a4 in the Archul Gemara. And we are starting a new Mishnah. A new Mishnah that takes us back to the laws of Karbanos, the laws of the sacrifices over the Yamim Tovim during the various holidays. And this Mishnah is a very interesting Mishnah. This Mishnah records the very few first dispute that was argued between the various rabbis, the very first one. And this takes place, for this dispute, this, it took place in the beginning of the second temp, uh, second the, the, of the second base of Migdash. In the beginning of that, of that era, of the second base of Migdash, is when this first dispute applied, uh, came up, which means that they did not have a single dispute until this point in time, from the time that Moshe received the Torah, until the beginning of the second base of Mikdash, they did not have a dispute that was a serious dispute amongst the rabbis. That that was a lasting dispute. This is this is going to be the first one. In fact, it wasn't until Shammai. It was only this one until Shammai and Hillel. Shammai and Hillel had three disputes between them, between Shammai and Hillel. But the students of Shammai and Hillel, they had many many more. And the real beginning of series of a lot of disputes happens with the students of Shammai and Hillel. And Tosus, the classic commentator on the, on the page, says, he says explicitly that the reason why so many disputes came about from the students of Shammai and Hillel is Shimshu Because they did not serve their teachers properly with the everything that you need. You put you have to put everything into it in order to pass it on from generation to generation. You have to put all of it, you're all of it, put all of it into it, and um, they didn't do that, and so therefore the students themselves had many disputes between each other. So the Mishnah now discusses the the first dispute ever within the Torah, and it's going to quote a lot of different rabbis taking different positions on each side, and each pair of rabbis, the first and second, are from the same generation. One is the Nasi, who is the head of the Beisdin of the judicial court. And then the second one that's mentioned is the Av Beisdin. The Av Beisdin is the one that is in second in, in command, the second one in charge. So the Nasi is the first one in charge, and the Av Beisdin is the second one in charge. And it's going to go through a whole list of people, of great Torah scholars, who take different positions on the following issue. What issue is the first dispute about? It's about whether or not a person, a person should do smicha on a sacrifice. What is smicha? The sacrifice itself requires a whole a whole process. It, the first step in the process is to slaughter the animal. But before you slaughter the animal, there's a, a process called smicha. Smicha in Hebrew, Hebrew literally means to lean on, to rely upon. Over here, what happens is, is that the owner of the animal pushes upon the animal before they slaughter it. And if it's a sin offering, so then... He says vidui, he says his confession as he's pushing onto the animal. And if it's not a sin offering, if it's a, a praise offering, so then he says words of praise of Hashem as he's leaning on to this korban, onto this sacrifice. And there's a discussion, are you allowed to do this on Yantiv or are you not allowed to do this on Yantiv? What would be the problem with doing this on Yantiv? The problem with doing this on Yantiv is that, is that there's a prohibition to to ride on an animal because we're concerned this is a rabbinic prohibition that we're concerned that you're going to eventually if you're riding on the animal 
you're going to come to violate Shabbos or Yantav explicitly by perhaps breaking off a branch or doing something else. And included in that prohibition, including that category, is not just to ride on the animal, but also to use the animal. Any form of what we call hishtamshus, using the animal, that could be pushing the animal, moving the animal in some sort of way, using that animal, that's a prohibition. Now, if there's a mitzvah, so then we might uh, that mitzvah might override this rabbinic prohibition if there's a biblical mitzvah. But we'll see that there's a dispute as to whether or not you're allowed to do this on yantiv. And so that dispute about whether you're allowed to do this on yantiv or not might depend on other factors as well that's found in other tractates uh, with regards to this dispute. Some are of the opinion that those that say that you do not have to do smicha here that you should not do it on Yantiv is because they hold that you do not have to do it right before you slaughter the animal. You don't have to push on the animal right beforehand. If you're going to slaughter the animal on Yantiv itself, so then you could do that pushing, that smicha onto the animal, you could do that from before Yantiv. You don't have to do it on Yantiv. And since you have the option, so then you should do it before Yantiv because on Yantiv itself would be a problem of using the animal when you're not really supposed to use an animal on Yantiv or on Shabbos. The second approach of how to understand this dispute, which is found, is that it's a dispute as to whether or not there's even an obligation. Is there an obligation to do smicha on this korban, on this obligatory korban of, let's say, a chagiga? So then, is there is there an obligation to even do smicha? If there's no such obligation, so then you're not allowed to do it, presumably because you're using the animal. And so if there is an obligation to do it, so then you would be allowed to do it, even though you are pushing the animal, but because it's for the mitzvah of smicha, pushing onto the animal before you slaughter the animal, so then it would be allowed. So whether or not this is allowed or not is a big, big dispute here. The first dispute that's found in our oral tradition. So it says the Mishnah, The Nasi says, the, he's from the times of the beginning of the second base of Mikdash, of the second temple, he says you should not, you should not perform a smicha, lean on the animal, for a sacrifice which is on Yantav. Yosef ben Yochanan, Omer Lismoch. Yosef ben Yochanan says you should do it. Yoshua ben Prachio of the next generation says Shalom Lismoch, you shouldn't do it. Nitai Barbali, Omer Lismoch says you should do it. Yehuda ben Tavai, Omer Shalom Yismoch. Shimon Beshetach, Omer Lismoch. There's a dispute here. Should you do smicha, should you not do smicha? Should you lean on the animal, should you not lean on the animal? Shmai Omer Lismoch, Shmai says to lean on the animal. Avtalian Omer Shalom Lismoch, you shouldn't lean on the animal. Again, this is all in the context of Yantiv, that on the holiday. When you perform a sacrifice, should you do this, should you not do this? Everyone seems to be in agreement that if it's not Yantav, it's just during the week, so that there's there's no counter-pressure. You might as well lean on the... Uh, you, 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 it would be permissible, and you should lean on the animal. Hillel Menachem, lo nechlechu. Then finally we get to the Hillel, the famous Hillel. It says, Hillel and Menachem did not argue about this. They were from the same generation. Yatza Menachem, when Menachem left, the Gemara is going to explain exactly why he left the Sanhedrin the judicial court, the high judicial court, why did he leave the Supreme Court? But he left, Nichol Shammai, Shammai came in, and then there's a dispute, Shammai Omer Shalolismoch, Shammai says, you should not do smicha on Yantiv itself, there's no need to do it on Yantiv, Hillel Omer, Lismoch Hillel says that you should do it, you would have to do it on Yantiv, because he feels that it's a mitzvah, or you can't do it before Yantiv, so you're allowed to do it on Yantiv, you're allowed to push the animal. Okay, the Mishnah continues and says, Harishonim, Hayunusiyim. The first of each pair was the Nasi of the court, the head of the Supreme Court, Ushtim Lahem Abbezin. And the second one of the pair, for every pair, the first one that's mentioned is 
that it was the Nasi, was the head person in the, in the court, of the, of the Supreme Court. And the next one was the second head person, who was the second to the head, second in command of the Supreme Court. Okay. The Gemara now quotes the following dispute with regards to one of these pairs. Tanarabanan, it is taught in a brisa. We're now in 16b1. Shlosha mezugos harishonim sha'amru shalalismo. The first three pairs who said not to do smicha. Anyantiv, not to push the animal with all your might. Anyantiv, ushnai mezugos harishonim sha'amru shalalismo. And also the last two of these pairs who said that you should do it. Hayunisim. They were the heads of their. Uh, of their Supreme Court, Ushnim Lahem Avos Bezdin, and the opposite, the second one in their pairs was the Av Bezdin. Diver Mer, that's what Mer says. Chacham argue, Chacham say no. Yehuda Ben Tavai Av Bezdin. When we mention Yehuda Ben Tavai, the Chachamim say he was one of the people on the list. He was really second in command. Shimon B'Shetach Nasi Shimon B'Shetach was the head person in the in the Supreme Court. And again, the first opinion argues and flips it and says no. Shimon B'Shetach was. The second in command, he wasn't in the, the highest, and Yehuda ben Tavai, he was the highest. So we have a dispute here in that generation of Shimon ben Shetach and Yehuda ben Tavai, who was the head? Was it Yehuda ben Tavai was the head of the, of the Supreme Court, or was Shimon ben Shetach the head of the Supreme Court? So what the Gemara is going to do now is the Gemara is going to say, well, we're going to have a brisa that tells us, that seems to imply one way versus the other to resolve the dispute as to which one of these two Torah scholars was the head of the Supreme Court, and which one was the second in command? So the Gemara says, "Mantana If you, uh, who are you going to explain? Who is the author of the following brisa? We have this following brisa from the time period of the Mishnah that says as follows. And just to give a very quick background to this discussion, this has nothing to do with korbanos sacrifices or the chagiga. What this has to do with is the concept of an aid zomem. Aid zomem is as follows. In order to testify in court, for most cases, you need to have two witnesses. You need two witnesses. If you want to have somebody uh, brought to death for murder, you need two witnesses to say that they that the person murdered. Um, so that's what you need. You always need two witnesses. Aid zomem is a unique case. You can always have disputes. You can have two witnesses, or uh, in terms of different witnesses, you can have two witnesses that say that the person murdered. You can have two other witnesses that say that no, he didn't murder the. The murderer that you're accusing of was actually with us. It's, it's not true. We didn't see anything take place on the day that you said. There's a unique case called Eid Zomim. Eid Zomim is where the witnesses say that the murderer, we know that the murderer was a murderer because we were there. And then two other witnesses come and say, they don't comment on the murderer, but they comment on the witnesses themselves. And they say, no, the, the witnesses themselves, it's impossible for them to have been there because at the time that they're mentioning when the murder took place, they were really with us somewhere else. This is a unique type of uh, situation where two witnesses not only contradict other witnesses, but they're also testifying essentially on those other witnesses claiming that, right, they're not testifying on the murderer directly, they're testifying on the other witnesses saying that they were, the other witnesses were with us in a different place. And so then after they testify on those second pair of witnesses, then uh, we prove from there that uh, they could not have been there, their testimony is false, and they could not have been there by the murder. So... In such a case of an aid zomim, the law is as follows. It's a lot to get discussed, but the law is as follows, that if two witnesses come and say that the first two witnesses were with us in such and such a place, and therefore they couldn't testify, then whatever they were testifying about, whatever result, the punishment that they wanted to incur upon uh, the person that they're testifying about, happens to those first pair of witnesses. Those first pair of witnesses now get the punishment that they wanted to give uh, to that person that was in court, 
it's a form of a punishment to those witnesses for falsely testifying, but only in the case where two other witnesses come along and say that they were with us, they're testifying on those first two pairs, those first, that first pair of witnesses, those two witnesses, saying that they were with us in such and such a place, and therefore they could not have seen whatever took place take place, whether it was a murder or someone stealing, whatever the case is. So the law is that that we only we only go through this punishment to the first pair if the 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 person that they're discussing, the person that was in court to begin with, was not yet punished. So for example, the two witnesses say that he murdered, and then he would be deserving of the death penalty. Now if he got the death penalty, if after the death penalty two other witnesses come and say, No, the first pair was with us, the first pair does not get the death penalty in our in our tradition. And it's only if that that person, the the, the first pair, uh, they it was because of the first pair that there was a judgment that the person is deserving of the death penalty for murder, but not that not that they actually went through with it. The other, the second pair of witnesses only come; they would have to come before they execute the the uh, the person that was found to be guilty. Okay, that's the law. However, the tzedukim argue. They're the group called the Tzedukim who don't believe in our oral tradition, they argue and they say that, no, you only kill the first pair if the actual person that they were testifying about did get killed. So Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai says, Ere ben Nechama, it says, May I see Nechama, consolation, which means I will not, it's really, uh, it's really a form of a praise, but it's really not a praise. It's saying, I, I cannot be consoled, essentially, is what it's saying. If I did not ex- Execute an aid zomim. One of these pairs, one of these pair of witnesses of the first pair of w- the witnesses. We'll see. It's actually just one individual that he killed. One individual. He says that I did as follows. Essentially, what he's saying is that we had a case where uh, one person really testified another that they committed murder. Then two other witnesses came and said that that person was with us. It's impossible for them to witness the murder. They were with us on that day. And so Yehuda ben Tabai said, you know what? I am going to kill this witness uh, but because, this is, because these other two witnesses came, the second pair came before the person who was originally found to be guilty was killed. So they came before he was killed. And so therefore... She, Yehuda ben Tabai wants to kill the first person who came because that will show what the law really is. Because the Tzedukim are of the opinion, they don't believe in the oral tradition, and therefore they're of the opinion that you only kill them after the first person is killed. And we believe that, no, you only kill them if the first person was not killed. The, 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 the person that they're discussing was not killed. Only then do we execute that first pair of witnesses who were found to be falsely testifying. And so, therefore, Yehuda ben Tabai wanted to uh, or he did kill this one witness who testified on on such a person, and then he was found to be an Edomim, he was found to be falsely testifying because two other witnesses came and they said that that person was with us. So that's what Yehuda ben Tabai did. And again, he's doing this because he wants to prove the Tzedukim wrong. The Tzedukim believe that this only applies if the actual person that they're testifying about actually gets killed. And that wasn't the case here. So Amr Lashem Meshetach, Shem Meshetach, who's a contemporary of his, says... He says it must be that you just spilled innocent blood. Why? In that case, it was only in that particular case 
only one of the two original witnesses was found to be an Eidzomim. The other one was not found to be an Eidzomim. The other one was not found to be lying. Only one of the two was found to be lying, where we had other witnesses come and say that that one of the two was with us. Since only one of the two was found to be an Eidzomim, the entire law doesn't apply. They prove from a verse that it must be that only when both of them, both uh, of that original pair are found to be lying in this type of way, that they get the punishment. But if it's only one of the two, so even that one does not get the punishment. So Shimon ben Shetach responds back to Yehuda ben Tobai and says that you killed him for no reason. You should not have killed him. Some explain that Yehuda ben Tobai knew that, but he killed him really just to prove a point against the Tzadukim. He really, it was there to prove a point against the Tzadukim. And Shimon ben Shetach says that, is responding back by saying, no, you can't do that. Even if it's to prove a point against the Tzadukim, who don't believe in the oral Torah, you still cannot do that. You cannot kill somebody who is innocent. As the Chalm say, you don't You can only kill Adim Zomimin, punish them if both of them are found to be lying in this ty- and in this type of a lie. You can't give them lashes if that was their intention um, unless they're both found to be guilty. And they also cannot pay money unless they are both found to be guilty. And that wasn't, that wasn't what was going on in our case. So the Gemara goes on. And now in 16b2, and Yehuda ben Tabai hears this from Shem Meshatach and he accepts upon himself. He says, you know what, you're right, I messed up, I made a mistake. Uh, some commentators ask, how is it possible that, that they messed up? We have in various sources that say that uh, our Torah scholars, they are guided by Hashem. How would Hashem let this person mess up? So some want to explain that it's true, he messed up and he gave him the death penalty for this reason and that was incorrect because it wasn't, he wasn't deserving of death because of Adam Zomman, but he was deserving of death for some other reason that he didn't know about. And so therefore the death penalty was the correct approach to get to take. It's just that he yeah, he did it for the wrong reason. Yehuda ben Tabai did it for the wrong reason. But the Gemara goes on. It says, Yehuda ben Tabai accepted upon himself that he's never going to say what the law is unless he consults first with Shimon ben Shetach. Shimon ben Shetach proved him wrong and then Yehuda ben Tabai says, I cannot say anything. I can't make any halakhic ruling unless Shimon ben Shetach uh, gives his approval. So the the, the Brisa just concludes. It says, "Call Yomav shall Yehuda ben Tabai hayim mishtateach al kibro shall also harug the rest of his life." Yehuda ben Tabai would go every day and and prostrate himself over the grave of the person that he executed for forgiveness. Via kol nishman, there was a voice that was heard. They heard some sort of voice. The people, the nation, thought that it was the voice of the person that was killed. The voice that was the person that was killed in his grave. He was calling out. But Yehuda ben Tabai said, no, Amalaham Kolihu. It's really my voice. No, it's my voice. I'm the one that's calling out. And the proof to this is that the next day, Yehuda ben Tabai dies, and they didn't hear any voice anymore. So if they didn't hear any, vo- any voice anymore, it must be that it was from Yehuda ben Tabai. Yehuda ben Tabai was one that was crying, calling out, asking for forgiveness. The Gemara says, no, maybe it's not a proof. Who said there's a proof of the fact that you didn't hear the voice anymore, that it must have been from Yehuda ben Tabai who passed away? No. The fact that he, he passed away, maybe after his death, Yudah ben Tabai went to appease the person that he killed, or he was summoned to judgment, to justice, and because of that, the person was really the one that was, was, was everyone, the one that everyone heard was really the one that was, um, was killed. But he stopped, he stopped crying once, uh, once, uh, Yudah ben Tabai was judged properly or he asked for appeasement in the next world. Okay, that's the end of the Brisa. But what we get out of the Brisa is essentially that Yehuda ben Tabai originally would 
rule on his own, and it was only after this whole incident that he said, you know what, I cannot rule without Shimon ben Shatach. So this seems to imply that if he's ruling on his own, that he's really the main person in charge. Because if he was second in command, he wouldn't say that he would rule on his own. So the Gemara says, Money who? Who's the author of the Brisa? Yeah, I'm Rabbi Shalom If you're going to tell me that it's Rabbi Meir who says, that is the Nasi, he's the number one in charge, and Shimon Shatach is number two, so then I understand. That's what it means that, that Yehuda ben Tavai, he ruled originally before this whole incident on his own, even if Shimon Shatach was around, he wouldn't ask him for advice because he was the head one in charge. Only after this incident did he realize, I need Shimon Shatach uh, to help me in my rulings. But if you want to say that it's the Rabbanan, Who's flip it and the Amri say the Amri Yehuda ben Tavai Abayz and Shimon Shatov Nasi that Yehuda ben Tavai is really the second in charge. He's not the main one in charge. So then, why was there ever a situation where he was ruling on his own? It implies that he was ruling on his own. So the Gemara says, no, lo, you can't bring your proof. Maybe he's really the second one in charge, and it doesn't mean that he was ruling on his own. It doesn't mean that he was really not ruling on his own. He really he always ruled with Shimon ben Shatov, who was really the leader. He was the number one in charge. Rather, my Vikibal of the Kamar, what does it mean that he took upon himself to always ask him in Meshatach? He was always asking him in Meshatach beforehand. Rather, let's rufe dafile, let's rufe nami lo mistarfina. What it means is that he would always ask him in Meshatach beforehand because Shimon Meshatach was the number one in the Supreme Court and he was number two. Yehudim and was number two. But what he was saying after this incident is that he would never even have a court case unless Shimon Meshatach was around. If Shimon Meshatach wasn't around until then, they would have their own court case with Shimon Meshatach just not being around. Now he's saying no. Because of this incident, I can't trust myself, and I need Shimon Shatov there. And if he's not even around, we're not going to have the court case at all. It must be that he has to be present. He has to be part of the court, ca- the, the 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 judges, in order for us to rule properly. Okay, that is the conclusion of this Gemara. It's a very fascinating Gemara about a Zomim. We had the Mishnah that discusses uh, the very first dispute about Smicha, and we'll continue with that discussion in the next recording.